If you have your Bibles, open it up. I'm going to eventually get to Ecclesiastes. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, chapter 7. We've been talking about finishing a season. And uh, as we've spent these last weeks, we decided, I know uh, we have guests and, and it might be a good time for a short review. We just decided that instead of just one day being here and the next day closing up shop, that we were going to do our best to intentionalize our closing and be able to run the race. Uh, you know, there's something to be said when you're in the middle of a race that you just don't stop running because you just don't, you're just not going to finish the race or you're not going to conclude what you got started and you just stop. There's something, in fact, it makes me think of in baseball. You know how in baseball they tell you that if you hit the ball, you run it out right? You, you don't hit the ball, and even if it, if it goes back to the pitcher and he throws it quickly over to first and, and you're called out by the umpire and you're not even halfway down you know, the foul line yet, you don't stop. Your coach tells you that you run it out. You run through the bag. And so I came to the conclusion that it was obviously the will of God for us to conclude our time together but these last weeks we were going to spend together, and it started almost 10 weeks ago, that we were going to run it out. We were going to find a date. We were going to run it out. We were going to intentionalize this thing. And uh, we were going to finish in a way that just didn't fizzle, but we were going to finish in a way that honored God. And so we've been using the phrase, it's the famous line we've been using, that said, it's not how you start, it's how you finish. Isn't that true? It's not how you start, it's how you finish. Jesus Jesus said some of these very words in Matthew 24, 13. He said these words. He said, he who endures to the end will be saved. Isn't that interesting? There's a lot of people that line up and start up with regards to uh, their Christian walk. But he says, he who endures, he who gets to the finish line will be saved. That ought to challenge your sociology. That ought to challenge your salvation. You know, there's a lot of erroneous doctrine. And Jesus said this. Jesus said there's something about perseverance that's in this equation. That if you're saved, that you need to persevere through the finish line. It doesn't matter how dramatic, how miraculous your testimony of being saved may be. It only matters whether or not you cross the finish line. Faithful. Put something similar down from Paul in 1 Corinthians 9 verses 24 through 27. If we have that, let me read it above. It says, Do you not know that those who run in a race all run, but one receives the prize? Run in such a way that you may obtain it, and everyone who competes for the prize is temperate in all things. Now, they do it to obtain a perishable crown, but we for an imperishable crown. Therefore I run thus, not with uncertainty, Thus I fight, not as one who beats the air, but I discipline my body and bring it into subjection, lest when I have preached to others, I myself should become disqualified. In other words, Paul's saying, when you start this race, you run to the finish line. And so uh, one, of the, one of the benefits of knowing you're coming to a conclusion and you're coming to the finish line is that you can say just about anything that pops into your mind. And I just want to say this, that our circles, charismatics or Pentecostals or spirit-filled or full gospel or whatever the label is on our circles, I just want to say this, we are great starters. The question is, will we be good finishers? Our personal corporate season together is finishing. But I think it transcends our moment. Our moment together in these weeks is simply an illustration I think for some things that we need to embrace for our lifetimes. It's interesting to me, some of you don't know this, some of you haven't studied this, but for me, I, I can almost remember the early days of the renewal movement. The charismatic renewal started technically, historians say, in 1959, but it really didn't catch on until the late 60s and 70s. And uh, the renewal began and within churches of every conceivable background and fellowship and label began to experience the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. And it was an amazing time. You go through the 60s, the 70s, even the 80s. It was an amazing time in the renewal movement. 
But it's also interesting that as you reflect back, and some of us have been doing this for so many years now, that we can kind of remember the good old days. Seasons change. And in our movements, when we used to see outpourings of miracles, I mean, we saw things that would boggle the mind. Some of you that have walked in these circles for years have seen miracles that are just absolutely notable and noteworthy and healings and you know, just amazing, miraculous things take place. I have seen things in my lifetime that if the Lord were to take me now, I could go and I could say, I, I, I have seen things that would absolutely stagger the imagination. But what happened was, is that God works, as we've taught you already, in seasons. And when the season of that incredible outpouring was taking place in so many churches, when the season began to be changed, because you realize, just like with Jesus, as long as Jesus was feeding 5,000, he was healing the multitudes, as long as he was putting forth all the miracles, and as long as he was the miracle road show, there were thousands of people that followed the Lord. But the instant he started talking about taking up your cross, you know, following him, beginning the issues of discipleship, how many of you know in John chapter 6 it said that Jesus offended thousands away from him? And he looked at his closest disciples and he said, what are you going to do? I love Jesus at times, the things he does. He just, he just offends thousands. And then he looks at the few he has left and he dares them. There is absolutely zero inside of him that has to please who's left. He goes, what are you going to do? You going to hang around or are you going too? Like, like I dare you. It isn't going to bother Jesus any. And then Peter, of course, gives him this rousing endorsement. Peter goes, well, where else are we going to go? How would you like that for your last followers? Well, we don't have anywhere else to go. You have the words of life, though. We will admit you have the words of life, but we really don't have anywhere to go. And all of a sudden, the ranks thin and the ranks begin to be trimmed down. In our movement, in the charismatic renewal movement, it's interesting how everybody was flowing to it. They wanted to be a part of it. God was on the move. The Spirit was outpouring. But the moment God said, I blessed you with that season, now let's try faithful. Now let's try, can you walk with me when it's more like Hebrews chapter 11 and things are being thrown at you and adversity and hostility and challenge and what about concepts like faithful and perseverance and tenacity and finishing and all those other concepts, how's that going to work? And the minute that started to happen, it's been interesting to me because I even have friends. I have friends that grew up in spirit-filled churches that have now moved to churches that are preaching cessationism. In other words, they don't even believe the Holy Spirit can do that stuff anymore on the earth. You know what that tells me? It tells me that we have, we have trouble finishing. We have trouble walking through these things. I... I have pastor friends all over the nation, and so I can tell this story because I won't give any names or any ge geographical settings, but we have pastor friends all over the nation, and recently, and I mean very recently, I have a pastoral colleague, just a gifted guy, influential, just had so many things on the ball and sharp and smart, and God was using him in some amazing ways, and and I don't know what happened. Somewhere along the way, something, something happened, and he lost his mind. And he sinned against God, and he sinned against his wife, and he sinned against his family, and he sinned against his church. And he's literally, one more time, lost everything. Why can't we finish well? Why can't we do this? And so seasons come and seasons go, and adversity increases and adversity diminishes. And the Ecclesiastes writer told us already in chapter 3 that, that there are going to be good seasons and there are going to be challenging seasons. He said there's a time for everything. There's time that you're going to be popular and there's time that you're not going to be popular. There's time you're going to be, you're going to be you know, uh, maybe more wealthy or you'll have more disposable income and there'll be times that there'll be less income. You know, Paul said the same thing. He said, I know how to abound and I know how to be abased. And in all things, I'm after him. There's seasons for everything. There are going to be seasons in your life. Seasons come and seasons go. There are going to be times when it seems like you can do no wrong. It seems like everything you touch, you're like Midas. You've got the golden touch. 
And then there are going to be times where it seems like everything you're touched just falls apart. Every time I step into something, there's just havoc. There's going to be all kinds of seasons in your life. And hear me when I say this. You cannot be as simplistic to say, well, every good season must be God and every challenging season must be the devil because I'm here to tell you that's not the Bible. Sometimes God himself, God himself after Jesus was baptized and the heavens were opened and the Lord heard his father's voice saying, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. The Bible tells us that the spirit of God himself led Jesus into the wilderness Jesus' season changed in the wilderness, and it wasn't the devil. It was God who led him into it, and the devil showed up to try to exploit it. And that's what happens in your life, too. God leads you into different seasons, sometimes great, wonderful, over-the-top, off-the-chain seasons, and then other times he's leading you into more wildernessy times. Why? The Bible tells us to test you, to refine you, to begin to knock some things out of you, to work in you, to form some character. And as you're going through those times, and they are challenging times that God is using, that's when the devil shows up in order to exploit what God wants to use to help you. And even in that adversity, there's a blessing. Are you following me? And the question is, can you finish a season? Can you finish a season with your integrity intact? I've been asking myself all kinds of questions as this season in my life is finishing. When things don't necessarily shake like you painted them in your mind. Can you finish it with your integrity intact? It's interesting, I was thinking about Job Whenever you say Job, you can feel the atmosphere change in a room. You know, his season changed, didn't it? Wealthy man loses it all. And then his wife tells him to curse God and, and die. And, and Job said, I, I, I can't do that. I have to maintain my integrity. Job kept his integrity until his season changed again. Seasons will change. But when it changes a direction that's more challenging, can you keep that integrity? Can you finish one and enter another? And can you finish that one and enter another until you finally get to the last chapter of God's design for your life and then you finish it out into his presence? And so I want to share, and I have been sharing on, on these things, different thoughts. And so today, uh, this one actually probably is a lot more encouraging. I've entitled it, The Best Really Is Yet to Come. The best really is yet to come. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Let me read these passages, if I may. And uh, these are underlinable. Ecclesiastes 7, beginning with verse 8, we read, The end of a thing is better than its beginning. The patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Do not hasten in your spirit to be angry, for anger rests in the bosom of fools. That's, a, that's one right there. Anger rests in the bosom of fools. You know why he says, I'm telling you already why he says this. He's talking to somebody who life isn't shaking out like you think it should have shook out, and you're angry. And you're beginning to make decisions based out of your anger, and he says, you're a fool. You're a fool. Because the end of a thing is better than its beginning. And then he says in verse 10, Do not say, why were the former days better than these? For you do not inquire wisely concerning this. And so I want to talk to you, and I believe it will encourage you, the best really is yet to come. Do you believe that? The best is yet to come. you got to believe that. If you don't believe that, if you don't think that, as a man thinks in his heart, what does the Bible say? So is he. If you don't begin to believe that the best is yet to come, then chances are you may never see the best. You need to believe the best really is yet to come. And you need to believe what the Bible says when it says, don't look back wondering why it was better then than it is at this particular moment or what it will be in the future. He's saying, the end really will be better. I told you, I think, a few weeks ago, I, I, I took a moment and allow me to review because I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to come back to this, so I need to review for just a moment, that in the original language, there are actually two words for the word time. 
The first word I mentioned to you was a Greek word that you pronounce chronos. It's where we get our word chronological from. It's measurable time. It's the time on your watch. It's the time on the clock. It's the time on the calendar. It's, it's measurable time. Anything from seconds, minutes, hours, days, months, years, centuries, millennia, all of that falls under the category of chronos. Chronos is the word. If you ever study in the scripture where you see the word time, chronos means measurable time. And here's the good news, is that there is, there is a day on the calendar that God has picked out to move for you. That's the good news. God's not against the calendar. He's just not bound by the calendar. And there'll always be a moment on the calendar when God says, now, this is the moment, this is when I'm moving, this is when it's going to happen. It's like when you were saved. God saved you and there was a moment on the calendar for me, February the 14th, 1978, there was a moment on the calendar that God moved in my life. This was the day. And you may have one of those days as well. Chronos, time. But the other word which we've been dealing with more so is the word kairos. K, if I'm, I'm transliterating, K-A-I-R-O-S, kairos. And, and most times, for instance, in Ephesians 5 where it says to make the most of your time, it, it has more to do with opportune moments or opportune time or what some have translated to mean season. And the reason they translated season is because there are certain seasons in our life that are opportune. This is a season that, that, that may have something in it that, that is divinely orchestrated. It's a season that you're going to walk in where maybe more favor, you're, you're walking in more favor or more possibility or more opportunity. And so kairos is an interesting word as you follow its etymology and you try to begin to understand how it's translated. And, and the Bible uses these terms at different moments, but oftentimes in the translation it'll just come out time. And so I'm not sure what always goes forth in our head, but it's important you understand what God is speaking about because God not only uh, controls the seasons, but in the seasons then he begins to pick out those moments on the calendar when he says, this is it, this season. And so uh, some seasons, as I mentioned, we like, some we don't, but everything has a purpose under heaven. Now, uh, in Galatians 4.4, I hope it's on the screen overhead, uh, in Galatians 4.4, this is the Christmas part of the message today, all right? If you're saying, what does this have to do with Christmas? Here you go. It says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. Now, I read this verse to you because it's dealing with the incarnation. It's dealing when Jesus entered into the world. And this is what Paul wrote to the Galatian church. He said, in the fullness of Kronos, he said, there came a moment on the calendar when God said, this is the moment, this is the time, <clears throat> this is when I'm sending my son. So hear me when I say this. They had, they had literally centuries of promises concerning the coming of Jesus, and they went through all kinds of seasons. In fact, they had gone through a 400-year season in between the Testaments, 400 years where God did not speak there was no prophetic voice. There was nothing notable to mention. Can you imagine being the people of Israel and having a 400-year season? Most of us can't take a 40-day season. A 400-year season. Until finally God says, as he's still moving and controlling the seasons, he says, now on the calendar, I'm saying it's time. It's time. All the struggle... All the adversity, all the oppression, all the slavery, all the captivity, all the dysphoria, all the things the Jewish people had faced. God says now on the calendar it is time for your season to change. And here's the saddest part of the Christmas story is that most of the people whose attention God wanted to grab didn't get it. And so they missed it. They missed, they even missed it on the calendar that God was changing seasons. I don't want you to miss it. There's going to come a moment in much the same way, all your adversity, all the hostility, all the oppression, all of the bondage, all of the heartache, all of the things that you have faced that seemed 
insurmountable and you've just you've done your best to just take one step in front of the other and you can identify with all of the challenging passages and things that people face. I just want you to get a hold of this, that there's going to be a moment that God's going to change the season. He's going to put it on the calendar. He's going to say, this is the day. And I'm telling you, you don't be clueless to that seasonal change because here's the deal. When their season was coming to an ending, they didn't finish it in order that they could move into their next season. They wanted to keep the season rolling. And that's just not how God rolls. There's going to be a day on the calendar that God says now. The angels are going to declare, I bring you good news of a great joy that shall be to you and all the people. Amen. When a season changes, I will assure you that all of a sudden the horizon looks different. Because now the best is on the horizon. And the Ecclesiastes writer tells us that very thing. In fact, he even takes it a step further. He says, now don't look back. Don't say the past was better. Don't do what Jesus would look at them and, and say when it came to, to, to wineskins and old wine. You know what he said to them when he talked about bringing new wine. He said there'd be some who'd look at the new wine and say, we don't want that. We think the old's better. And boy, isn't that, isn't that the motto of a lot of believers and even the church at large? Well, we think, we think the past is better, and we want, we want to ride a season and not learn how to conclude that season in order to move into our next season. And what happens is when we, when we begin to miss those transitional moments, we get aggravated and we get angry. What did the Jews get with Jesus? They got angry, did they not? He says, don't get angry. That's, that's the let anger rest in you. You're being a fool. That's, that's, that's tough talk from the Lord. It's the hardest thing in the world. We would rather, we are so fearful of what our next season may be and so reluctant to step into that season, we would rather keep battling the demons and the darkness and the depression and the dysphoria and all of the things in our past season because we, we, don't, we don't want to step into our next season for fear somehow there's a trap door out there. And so what do folks do? They get angry because I don't want to have to move. I don't want to have to transition. I don't want to have to believe again. I don't want to have to do something in obedience. I just want to stay here and God, you just stay where I am and do it for me right here. And God's saying that's not how it works. Go read Hebrews chapter 11 again. Everyone that entered into their next season in Hebrews chapter 11 had to do so by faith. Abraham, in order to receive an inheritance by faith, went to a land that he knew not, not knowing where he was going. That's Bible. And it's still Bible for us. I'm just preaching to me, and I'm just, I'm just letting you guys listen. Is that okay? <clears throat> the benefit of getting older if you take advantage of it, is you, you can evaluate, hopefully, your life. I've walked with God for 40 years. In that 40-year time period, I, I can tell you for a fact, if I look back now, and, and I ought to get a witness on this one, I've made some good decisions. Regrets, I've made a few but then again, too few to mention. No, I, no. Frank Sinatra made a lot more mistakes than his song would make you want to think. But if, if you take the time, and especially to those of you that have walked with God for some years, and for those of you that haven't walked with God maybe for years, and I don't know everybody's story here, so all of us may have some, some mileage under our belt, but if you, you don't have as much mileage under your belt, then, then I want to encourage you to do this at this particular moment. Listen to somebody who's got some miles underneath them and don't say at this moment, well, that's him, that won't be me. Because you will be the fool. Everybody learns, I've said one of two ways. You either 
You either learn by listening to the voices of experience or you learn through pain. Those are your two teachers. Choose one because there is no third option. I can tell you after 40 years of walking with God that I have experienced various seasons in my life. Some seasons, some seasons I look back to, and I'll be honest with you, I read that there, and it talks to me sort of in a convicting way because there are moments I look back and say, oh, if I could just go back to that season. I tell you what, if I could go back there, I would savor that moment a whole lot more than I did at the time. Now, some of that isn't bad. Some of that is just reflecting and, and just saying, boy, I, I wish I knew how good I had it then. I didn't realize how good I had it. I didn't think it was all that great at the time. I was really, in fact, when I was a young man, I had destination disease. I was always wanting to go to the next, to the next place. I had destination disease, not realizing that maybe, maybe God had a destination that, that if I would have trusted him, he would get me to. But while I was on the journey, he had some things he wanted to do in Brother Baird. But as I look back over 40 years, I can tell you there have been seasons. And I, I'm just, I'm just going to talk right now. Hopefully, I just, just, just humor me. When I, was, when I was born again, I was called about three months after that to the ministry. God got me when I was just dumb, ignorant, and clueless. Because if I'd have known anything about ministry, I would have run. But I wasn't smart enough to run. I had no mileage in ministry. I thought that's the greatest job in the world, Anna, that you could have, is to be in the work of the ministry. I was just, I was just dumb. It was like God said, we're going to get him when he doesn't know anything, when he's ignorant. We'll get him when he's ignorant, and he'll say yes because he's stupid. And that's how it worked for me. I just said yes. I would go to class, and I would listen to the to the guys that were called and training for the ministry, and they would struggle. They would, t- they would say, oh, because most of their dads were in the ministry. Oh, I know this was hard. I wrestled with this call for years. I wrestled for years, and they would talk about their struggle, their strain, and I'd listen to it all, and I'd go, what's their problem? All you do is say yes. And, of course, you feel real spiritual at that moment, not realizing that they have information you don't have. But boy, I started to learn. And through that 40, this 40-year time period, there have been great seasons and remarkable seasons, and, 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 but there have been tough times. I remember the first, and this is what God, this is, this is really God is, you know, you've heard God is, is Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Sidkenu, Jehovah Rapha, Jehovah Shama. I think he's Jehovah Sneaky. I think he sneaks things in on you. Because I'm just telling you, I was, when I was called to the ministry, God then just started, he started opening these doors that were just outlandish for me. I didn't do anything. I was this kid. My folks, my folks weren't really tied into church or the things of God. I was the first one in the family tree, really, that got really born again in the evangelical sense. And God opened these doors up. And I hadn't been studying for the ministry long, but he's opening doors. And I get to go travel. And I get to speak at, at college campuses. And I get to speak at chapels. And, and, and I'm holding meetings. And I mean, it was an amazing thing. And here, but here's the problem. I had no basis in my experience grid of understanding that I was in a season that wasn't going to last forever. Now, I'm grateful for that favor. And God did a lot of things and important things in my life. And opened up these doors, and it was a great thing. But then seasons changed. And you've heard me tell the stories about all of a sudden I had to go be a custodian. I had to to, uh, uh, clean up after kids and clean bathrooms after elementary school kids. Do you know how nasty a bathroom is with elementary kids? Do you know that they can think of things to do in a bathroom that would not even cross your mind? And I won't even tell you if I get me over in a corner sometime and I'll tell you those stories. Amazing. I said, how could you think of this? Do they do this at home? Probably not. So, so it was a hard season and all the things, but then seasons changed again. And God opened up a door and that season It had an amazing, remarkable ending, but another door opened, and I could go on and on and on and tell you the seasons, this season to that season. And and I remember when when it was a difficult time in California, and I was in a denominational church, and and they didn't have have a grid 
that could handle the baptism with the Holy Spirit. And I got baptized with the Holy Spirit in the midst of incredible adversity and hostility in the Bay Area, which is probably ground zero for paganism in California. But that's where God baptized me in the Holy Ghost. And then I didn't have any money. I probably had a couple hundred bucks in my pocket was all just just enough to get a a moving truck and put some gas in it and get across the country and we get to Evangel Cathedral and then God does some more miracles. It's an amazing thing what he begins to do. And there's another season of some favor, but then seasons change. And I got called to Charleston. How many of you know that's a seasonal change? And there's some great things that have happened here, and I'll go and leave, and that's the wonderful thing about the Holy Ghost is he tends to make you forget the bad and remember the good. But I'm telling you, seasonal changes. But here was the key that I've learned, and I could go through, and I could, I could show you short seasons, long seasons. I could give you the macro view of the whole deal of how seasons have worked, at least in my life, by my experience. But I can tell you, based on the Word of God and looking at the people that walked with him in the book, I can tell you this, that no matter what season you are in, this is a truth that I have learned in 40 years, and it's this. No matter where I'm at, what I'm going through, how it looks, what I'm feeling, what the circumstances may be, I can say this with absolute certainty, the best is still yet to come. Still yet to come. No matter where you are, you say, well, I'm in a pretty good place. Well, that's great. I'm telling you, there's still better yet. You say, I'm in, a, I'm in a pretty tough place, and I don't even know how this can even end. I'm telling you, it'll end, and a better day is coming. The best is yet to come. Now, <clears throat> this is where I want to teach you just a couple things before we go. I'm pulling this out so I can make sure I don't over-preach you so we can't beat the Baptist to the buffet. Why I'm convinced, I'm going to give you, I think, what is it, eight things? Why I'm convinced the best is yet to come. And this is, this is going to be basically from your Bible. Why I'm convinced the best is yet to come. I want you to hopefully write this down or somehow get it in your spirit. Because there's going to come a day that you're, you're going to be convinced it's not true. And I, I'm going to give you something, leave you something in your Bible. Because maybe you won't be able to get the YouTube channel anymore and hear it from my mouth. You can write it down and you can bank on it. Take this one to the bank. Why I believe and am convinced the best is yet to come. Number one is this. It's because of the pattern of Jesus' life. The Bible tells me that I'm an heir and a joint heir with him. Tells me that really he's my brother. Now, I could go into the whole theology of the Godhead and believe me, I'm on target with my theology. But I want to tell you at this point that when Jesus came to this earth... He came fully God and fully man. That's what incarnation is all about. He was fully God and fully man. And I believe that as he walked on this earth, he was demonstrating to us what it could be for us. And in Jesus' life, I'm just here to tell you that there are some interesting things about Jesus is born in a stable. First thing that happens is that people are trying to kill him. Obviously, his parents are able to whisk him away. You know the story to Egypt. They're eventually able to come back. He grows up. The time comes on the calendar when God opens the door. He begins to walk into his destiny, and some amazing things happen in Jesus' life. He's the most popular thing going in Palestine. But then the the season changes. Adversity comes. And you know the story. There's a crucifixion. But after a crucifixion, hear me, what is there? A resurrection. Now, what could be the resurrection? Well, there's an ascension. Well, how does it get any better than an ascension? Well, there's going to be a second coming. (laughs) And you see, there's always something better on the horizon. The pattern of Jesus' life is this, and that is he endured adversity and hostility and difficulty. He endured everything that you and I could possibly endure even to the point of dying on a cross, and yet even through that death, a better day was coming. And even if there's death in your life, there's a better day coming. And we got to remember that. 
the pattern of Jesus' life. It, it clearly demonstrates that the best is yet to come. Number two is this, that besides Jesus, there's all kinds of other biblical templates. Now, I can't go through every biblical template that's there, but there's multiple templates. Let's just, I'm going to throw maybe two out. The first one will be Joseph. Everybody knows Joseph. I mean, how would you like to be sold by your brother, brothers into a pit? Go to Potiphar's house, falsely accused. Go to prison. How many of you know after about two decades, you begin to wonder? And yet, how many of you also know that the reason we like the story of Joseph is because we know the end of the story? See, that's why Joseph ministers to us. It's because we can see and we can read that for Joseph, there was a better day ahead. But hear me now, what do you think Joseph felt like halfway through that chapter? I got a feeling there had to have been a moment or two in there where he had to have been saying, what am I getting myself into? Is there a God? Does he hear my prayers? Does he care about what I'm going through? Is there any justice in the earth? You know, and then he asked prisoners, he asked two of his prisoners to help him out. And of course, his first mistake was to believe that somebody in prison with you has any integrity to follow through on what they promised they would do. And so what does he have to do? He has to just keep believing that there is yet a better day coming. The best really is yet to come. Job's another one. Job loses it all. Everybody's counseling him. Nothing changes until we get towards the end of the book. And when you get to the end of that book, it says that he just, he's going to do what's right and pray for his friends. And the moment he prays for his friends, God changes the season and he's restored double of everything that he's lost. There's a better day coming. There's a better day coming. I could take you through so many of these pictures of people in the scripture and I'm telling you, I'm telling you that there is yet a better day coming for the people of God. Number three is this. I talk about the trajectory of the gospel. What do I mean by that? Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever thought that Christianity started out with about 120 people, let's just say, in an upper room? That's what it started out with, 120 people. Now think about it, that all of a sudden in one day it expands to, now they're over 3,000. A few days later, it expands again. They get about 5,000 more families. Now think about this, the trajectory of the gospel. Through all of the adversity, the persecutions of Rome, through all the hostilities, the martyrdom, everything that the church was facing, the trajectory of the gospel was this. You can't take it out. It just keeps going forward until now there are over 700 million Pentecostal-type Christians alone. We're not talking about Baptists and Methodists or Episcopalians or whatever denominational label you may use. Do you understand there is over a billion believers on the globe today? It started with 120, and now we're over a billion. I think it's safe to say that the trajectory of the gospel is going this way, and it tells me that no matter what happens in America, the best is still yet to come. Number four, the ever-increasing kingdom. Isaiah 9-7, I believe it's on the screen. Isaiah 9-7 says this, Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment, justice from that time forward, even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. You remember Jesus in one of his parables talking about the kingdom of God being a seed? Planting it in the ground and what happens to the seed? It grows. It turns into this tree. And all of a sudden everything is nesting in this tree. And he says this is like the kingdom of God. The best is yet to come. I, some of you today probably walked down here, maybe with a few bucks in your pocket, and you, and you threw it in the basket, and it was the last $2 that you had left. But if you'll begin to get this in your spirit, I may be just throwing a little seed in there, but there's coming a day that God's going to give me this gigantic oak tree. There's a better day coming. There's a better day that I may not be able to rub my two nickels together, but there's going to be a day that I'll be able to rub hundreds of dollars of bills together in my hand and be able to release it. There's a better day coming. There's a better day coming. 
But if you don't begin to see that and you don't transition from one season to another, you're going to miss what God may want to do. I'm glad if you love legacy, I'm glad you love legacy. And I appreciate that. And I have through the years. And we're celebrating all of that fact. But even as great as we think maybe legacy was, here's the good news. The glory of the latter house is greater than the former. Number five. The very word restoration. In Acts 3, beginning with verse 19, I may move through this rapidly, Chris. Peter's preaching. I want to get to about the middle there. It says that Jesus, of whom uh, Jesus Christ was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of what? The restoration of what? All things. Everybody say that again. All things. That God is going to restore all things. Now, we might debate how that looks, but I can tell you this, because I know enough about restoration, and have taught you all enough about restoration, that you know this, that when God restores something, he doesn't restore it so that it just mirrors what it was. His restoration is that he restores better than the original. When we restore a house, we're not restoring... If you're in downtown Charleston and you're restoring a house that was built in 1670, you're not trying to create another house that's a 1670 house. You're restoring a house that may look a little like it was 1670, but you still want your HVAC and you still want your gas stove and you still want your stainless steel appliances and you still want your granite countertops and you still want your all hardwood floors and you still want certain things, you want your big screen TV, you want your HD experience, you want everything, yeah, okay, it can look a little like 1670, but when we restore it, it's going to be better than the original. When God restores you, he's not restoring you to someone you were or something you had, he's restoring you to something you've never been and something better than you could have ever imagined. Do you understand however much time you and I have left, there's something out there that's better than we could have ever imagined. The best really is yet to come. Number six, the path of the righteous. The path of the righteous. It's okay if a Baptist or two beats us to the buffet, isn't it? The path of the righteous. How do I know that there's something better because of the path of the righteous? Scripture tells us that we are more than a conqueror. Start posting those passages, Chris. Romans 8, 36, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. That's how we feel sometimes. Yet, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. I love that. It's not, we're not even conquerors. We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Next passage. Now thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and through us diffuses the fragrance of his knowledge in every place. Next passage. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. That's the path of the righteous. It doesn't matter what gets thrown at me. It doesn't matter how it looks. It doesn't matter your circumstance. It just doesn't matter. You will triumph. You will overcome. You will be more than a conqueror. You say, well, you don't know where I'm at. And what do we do with these believers who are in China or other places that are facing absolute potential martyrdom? Well, now we get to number seven. How do I know that there's always something better? Number seven says this. It's the outcome of death. What, what, what's the worst thing we think that could happen to us? It's this. We die. That's the worst thing. What, what, what more? What could be worse than that? That's what we think. Post it. It says this. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? 
The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. What that means is this, that even if you kill me, it's still something better. This world is not the best we're going to experience. Your best life now really isn't now. Your best life is just around the corner no matter what. And it's even when the day, if we live to a ripe old age or if somehow we're taken out early, here's the good news. I win. I win this thing. That God wants to work some amazing things in me and through me now. But the good news is that no matter how long the adversity may last, I'm still going to be in a place that's way better than the one I'm in at this moment. Even if I lived, if I lived in the Caribbean and I had me a castle and I could lay on white sand beaches and look at pristine, clear blue water for the rest of my life and have people serve me and have everything I could even ever imagine, there's still something better that is yet to come. That's why you can take the step. Because there's something better. There's something better that's just around the corner. And then lastly, number eight is this. God always eclipses himself. Always eclipses himself. Whatever God did in days past, this is the cool thing about the Lord. That's not the tops. He has the capacity to continually outdo himself. He's the only one that could do that, by the way. He eclipses himself. He has, think about, think about this incredible God moment that only God can do. It couldn't get any better than this because only God could do this. And the Lord says, that's not even my best work yet. I, I can eclipse that. He's inexhaustible. There's no end to him. His miracles don't have a top end. It's not like a thermometer that if, his, that if his power gets up to 212 or something, you'll blow the thermometer. He can go as high and as long as he wants to. He always eclipses himself. The book of Haggai, we're told, listen, the book of Haggai says that the glory of the latter house will be greater than the former. What that means, is that on the screen, guys? Oh, there it is. How could it get any better than the temple? How could it get any better than the glory of God, the Shekinah, the Kabod of God descending upon the temple so that the priests were not able to rise? How could it get any better that the, the smoke would descend and be consumed in the clouds? I can't even fathom sights like this. How could it get any better? But God says, watch me. The best is still yet to come. Look what he said in the next one, 2 Corinthians 3.18. We all with unveiled face beholding as a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. Now this is the important phrase, what? From glory to glory. In other words, that whatever we've experienced of his presence to this point, there's yet another place that we can go to. There's another place that we can go to. There's another place that we can go to. You see, the best, it can't get any better than this. Oh, the best really is yet to come. I'm going to end with this. I, don't do, I used to do this every year, and I don't do this anymore, and I probably should. But I would read uh, a book entitled Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. Frankl was a Viennese psychoanalyst that also was incarcerated in a concentration camp during World War II under Hitler's Nazi regime. Because he was a psychoanalyst, he used that time in the concentration camp to evaluate people who were in the camp and what people did when they were confronted with incredible injustice, unfairness, hostility, adversity, can you imagine, just imagine with me, a concentration camp. And he's watching and he's evaluating everybody and how they handled this moment. 
And uh, out of that, he writes this book, Man's Search for Meaning. And he began to identify that there was a prevailing feature in people's lives concerning those who made it through and lived in the concentration camp to be finally to be finally released and those who died or succumbed to the concentration camp. He, he finally identified what he thought was the reason as to why uh, some people survived and why some people died. And he ended up quoting from the dastardly Nietzsche who didn't say many good things. He was just a despicable atheist. But he was quoting Nietzsche at this point. Because he thought Nietzsche stumbled upon something. And even, you know, you heard the old saying, even a blind pig finds an acorn on occasion. Even a blind guy can tell time twice a day. Well, even, a, even an atheistic philosopher can get something right on occasion. And so he quotes him and he says these words. He says, he, he who has a why to live, W-H-Y, he who has a why to live, to live can endure any how. <laughs> Hear me now. The difference between the succumbers and the prevailers in a concentration camp, all of them asking themselves, how am I going to survive this moment? How am I going to press through this season? How am I going to walk this? This is beyond me. This this is stretching me. This is killing me. The how, how, how. And this is what he says. How are you going to do it? It's because there's something in you that's got a why already. And I'll tell you what that why is. That why is, is because you know down deep the best is yet to come. This is how Paul said it, and I'll finish. He said it this way in Romans 8, 18. Post it, guys. He said, for I consider that the sufferings of this present season, that's Kairos, are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. Whatever you're facing at this moment, he says, is not worthy to be compared to what yet awaits just around the corner. How many of you believe the best really is? Yet to come. Stand with me, will you please?